Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way. The miners. Sure. They're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Three dead. Three women who aren't afraid to fight to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are in my not-so-humble opinion. Our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome, pen crackers. This is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen. And sitting on the other side of the fourth realm, Charlotte. The fourth realm, is it treating you well? <laughs> it is magnificent and poorly written, but what can we do? <laughs> There's a preview of what's to come. So we have an interesting topic for this holiday episode. Well, we think it's interesting. I think that you'll think it's interesting. We're going to be talking about the Nutcracker. Um, now, there are many different facets to this topic, and most famously, it's the ballet. And we will get there eventually. But I think it's important that we explore the origins of this tool slash story. I definitely think it's a unique aspect of the Nutcracker in that it's also practical, which is strange. So if it's cool, I'm going to go over a couple hopefully brief points and then we'll talk about the story. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Nutcracker as a tool and its history and then jump into the novella that is based off of that tool. So I think that Charlotte's job, really, I think everybody should pay Charlotte to do this one thing, which is you tell her all of your information and then she'll just like <laughs> put it into one sentence. It's really amazing. So we're going to start at the very beginning, which is obviously the Nutcracker. The regular old Nutcracker has been linked to ancient Greece. They were hinged levers and referred to as a pair of Nutcrackers, like scissors. And we're going to fast forward to the 14th century in Europe. They have Nutcrackers in England. They mention it in the Canterbury Tales, or they allude to it in the Canterbury Tales, and they were seen in France. And at that point, they were made of like silver, cast iron, bronze, brass, copper, and even porcelain, which seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. Let's take something to break something with something that's very fragile. Good idea. So it was in the Victorian era when people started using nutcrackers like a what I'm calling a practical toy. They were considered entertaining and fun to use them because they were very like ornate. And they also had a lot of nuts for dessert dishes, so they would actually use them. So they were topical pieces where you could like have dessert and play with these nutcrackers while you're having your dessert. So much work to just have dessert in the back to old times. Yeah, that's a good way of putting that. <laughs> so <laughs> it was in the 1700s in Germany that wooden nutcrackers really took off. And by the late 19th century, there were some really significant changes to the ancient tool from where it began. So the first is that the wooden nutcrackers with the figurative and decorative designs became really popular. So that's the image you see of like a man or a soldier. And they're souvenirs now. They're not necessarily the practical tool. They're more for show. And two, these nutcrackers shifted from artisan production 
to industrial manufacturing and they were for mass consumption. And I think the most significant change for the Nutcracker is what we think of today, its lack of use as a tool. The prime function of the tool fades away completely and the tool as a decoration continues on strong and not just a decoration, obviously, it's connected to this whole other realm, <laughs> story-wise. And a big reason that that happened was that in the 1960s, the availability of pre-shelled nuts caused parents to include nutcrackers because they put nuts in kids' stockings. Yeah. So it was like a family event, like a tradition. And like even my partner who's German said it seemed like everybody always had one nutcracker for Christmas and that's oh. you would use it, you know. But because we were able to buy nuts that were shelled, is it shelled or pre-shelled? I don't remember. It's backwards, whatever it is. They just didn't have a need for them to be practical anymore. Interesting. Um, so some nutcrackers don't even do the tool thing anymore. They look like they do, but they don't. So I'm going to step back for just a second. The artisan nutcrackers were carved of wood and they were usually figurative, which I think speaks a lot about story and how we project story onto items like dolls. They're considered dolls. They're the least creepiest of the dolls. Hmm. That's why I like to call them nutcrackers because I don't find them creepy at all. I think they're very cute. Hmm. But they were carved and they were usually of a soldier, a knight, a king, and other predominantly male professions. And these kinds of nutcrackers were and are apparently considered to be a good luck symbol in Germany. I have asked numerous Germans and firsthand they have all told me they've never heard of that. And it's interesting because the American wiki for nutcrackers says it, but the German wiki does not. So I'm not sure if that was something that like happened in its travels because the Nutcracker also makes quite a journey. Mm -hmm. But they were mostly wood. There was a lot of wood available where they were being made. And there was a lot of metal there that had been depleted because they had been mining so much. Mm -hmm. So the carving of Nutcrackers ended up becoming a livelihood for people in the Erzgebirge uh, region, which is where handmade nutcrackers are still made. And for anybody who wants to know, uh, nutcracker in German, Nussknacker. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. So it takes about 130 steps to create a nutcracker. And there are workshops, like I just mentioned, where you can watch them being made. So me and my partner took a little trip to Neuhausen, which roughly translates to like new homes in Erzgebirge last weekend. It's a very small town in the Ore Mountains of Saxony. It's known for two things, which name I cannot say. Perchenstein, that's my guess. And this collection of what they, they call it a museum, but it's like a collection of nutcrackers. And while there was no text or historical information, it was really interesting to visit anyway. It had a couple interesting add-ons as well, but there's like over 30,000 nutcrackers there from all over the world. And they have the world's largest functional nutcracker, which is 10.10 .10 meters high. Ah. And it weighs more than three tons. So hopefully that doesn't fall over. They also have the world's largest music box, which is a scene from the Nutcracker Ballet. <gasps> oh, <laughs> So a little piece of information that I found interesting is that 
when Germany separated and became the East and the West, the Erzgebirge region was behind the wall. So most people in the East of Germany couldn't afford nutcrackers, even though they were the ones making them. So the, the Eastern German nutcracker makers exported all of their goods to the West of Germany. And because it was in the West of Germany and the Americans were stationed in the West of Germany after the war, they started purchasing nutcrackers and started sending them home for Christmas. And it was a little interesting because they had just fought a war and yet the nutcracker is dressed like a Prussian soldier. Interesting. And it, it's just strange. Like there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. One, the point being that in effect, the nutcracker was sort of like a mini version of the ideological war going on because all these toy makers were like sending the nutcrackers out of Easter Germany so the mass-produced eastern nutcrackers that were being produced on the east side of the wall became less carefully manufactured and they couldn't use more than a few designs because of the leadership. So then it really became a much smaller and less well-constructed toy. I guess we're going to call it a toy. Whereas in the West, where it's not where it's originally from, they could be more creative and they have new designs and like you see a lot of non-traditional nutcrackers. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I really like this aspect of the nutcracker, like all of this history, because I do think it really changes your perspective of what this like common thing is. I think we all see nutcrackers everywhere at this time of year. And for me, it was just kind of like, yeah, there's a nutcracker. I don't know. I don't really have any thoughts about that other than like, cool, I've seen that before. But really, it's like a, a pretty interesting journey from ancient Greece all the way to the U.S. And I would even go as far to say that the evolution of this particular tool is such a testament to the, I don't even know what to call it, maybe a human psyche, maybe human creativity. Because if you think about it, it's all fictional. To make a tool a doll was a, like a craftsperson's at least according to my research and what you were saying, is that these woodworkers had extra time to make this tool festive. <laughs> well, better as a tool, but also more artistic. It became yeah. folk art rather than pliers. They didn't go in that direction. They went and we can make this into animals. We can make this into soldiers. Where do we place them when we're not cracking nuts? And then suddenly you get this, like you said, folktale of, oh, they bring good luck. Where did that come from? Because it wasn't in its country of origin. Maybe it was somebody else who received a nutcracker and used it that way. Others said that they placed it at their thresholds to ward off unwanted guests. And that's because they thought they looked ugly. They are. They're not attractive dolls. They are in that <laughs> the artisan puts in a lot of work and it's a beautiful craft. But if you look mm. at the face, I know our listeners can't see it. And I know you all know what a nutcracker more or less looks like. <laughs> but if you mm. think about its construction, it's unproportional in its body. The head is usually enlarged. The mouth is really big because obviously that's where the tool part is supposed to be. And the teeth are exaggerated to look like they're grimacing. It's not a pleasant grimace. It's not saying like, hey, we're happy to be here. It's kind of creepy. And it's a mm. cute creepy, but it's not supposed to be pleasant mm -hmm. and then of course there's some sort of facial hair that usually is attributed to like the soldier occupation or the the royalty occupation because some owners would say that they're making fun of the leaders or their civil workers because it's not always you know they're not always liking those people in power and having something like a nutcracker doll to express some of their frustration like this is you when you run our country look at your face it's not real and it's somewhat off-putting yet we keep you in our house there's a push and pull there, I think. Definitely. Those mythos that we project onto this tool and this doll 
has sort of evolved to, to have its own, like, oh, I use it for this. Even though it can crack nuts, we also tell this story. And then, hmm. obviously, E.T.A. Hoffman, who writes the first novella, The Nutcracker, will think similarly about what this doll particularly means. And then comes the attribution to Christmas and, and the ballet and such and such. But, like, starting off as a tool, we have this worldwide phenomenon and understanding of what the Nutcracker is. Yeah. And I personally wanted to talk about it because I had that same evolution with this thing. I mean, look, I, I again, listeners can't see it, but if we post this anywhere, I have only mm-hmm. four of my like 10 nutcrackers in my background here. <laughs> they go from small to really big to this guy here with a yeah. crown, which would be the royalty farce or particular cultures like this guy might be Russian. I have one that's Scottish. <laughs> They're coming up with all sorts now because it's an open template as far as the world knows it as long as it has that over exaggerated face structure it's structure mm-hmm. yes that's the most important part i would say of the nutcracker it that's stays no matter who's telling the story yeah based on what we saw at the museum i mean there is a nutcracker for anything film characters they have actors they have sports it doesn't matter what form because you're right it's all in the same structure and the same exaggerations so you recognize it instantly and I, yeah, I have that weird fascination. It's been a few years that I've had this fast, And I can't even explain. Well, now I can better explain why, because now we've done the research for these episodes. Psychologically, I want to project stories onto this weird object. Yes. <laughs> How could you not want to? Honestly. Right? <laughs> yeah. I really like them. My point and what the thesis for possibly this episode is, is that that evolution from tool to folktale to story to international ballet I think makes sense psychologically because we as creative people can project that story onto an object and keep that up, obviously, for hundreds of years. Yeah. That's kind of the thesis for this. But what would you say? Like, how do you feel about that? I feel like that's accurate (laughs) and true. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't like dolls. So I find it really surprising that I like the Nutcracker so much because it should be off putting. But It's obviously not because lots of people collect them or like to go to the ballet version of it. It's strange looking, but it never puts me off of the, I don't know what you call that, the style of them. And I think that's pretty impressive as well, especially since it's supposed to be a tool. That part is really mind blowing to me. I have a theory behind that as well. Or at least for me, the creepiest dolls are the ones that look most lifelike and most normal. Yeah. Because that's to us is abnormal. Yeah. Now, if you start with a doll that's made to be abnormal, yeah. suddenly there's a place for them within your household and within your psyche and your storytelling. They're un uncanny. They're too un uncanny. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. With any good thing humans have created, I think there's, of course, a folktale, as we just talked about, that goes along with our big-toothed, large-mouthed, nutcracking friend. In the book, The Legend of the Nutcracker and Traditions of Erskeberga by Ken Althoff, he mentions a folktale about how the nutcracker originated. There is many variations to this, but I'm going to go ahead and explain that one first, and then we can talk about a couple very minor variations. But the story is about a farmer. Uh, The farmer offered a reward to anyone who could help him crack the walnuts that grew on his tree. Uh, Basically, a carpenter came along and told him to saw the nut in half. A soldier told him to shoot the nut. That's 
great idea, buddy. Great idea. And then finally, Puppet Maker came along with a puppet made of wood and painted in bright colors, and it had strong jaws that could be used to crack the walnuts. The farmer rewarded him by giving him his own workshop. In a variation to the story, it said that it was a wealthy but lonely farmer, which I think is really sad. <laughs> he liked it so much because it looked like a human. Wouldn't it be nice if he was the real boy? And I don't know if that's the case, but I thought it was a weird thing to add if that's not correlated to something. So he wanted to find a more efficient way to crack nuts, which is so German. That sounds like the most accurate thing. They just always want to make things as efficient as possible. So he offers a reward to the best solution and all the villagers come up with their ideas based on their respective professions. But it's of course the puppet maker who wins with his nutcracker. And apparently puppet makers are a pretty significant theme in many European tall tales, which sounds horrifying, but again, not in the nutcracker's case. And that's a very brief tale of the nutcracker in its very simplest form, I think. The folktale itself is very minimal. Every yeah. version that I found were basically just that same story. There isn't more there. Is that what you found as well? Yes. Uh, actually, you found even more than I did as far as that story goes. Mm. It makes sense that E.T.A. Hoffman, when he wrote The Nutcrackers, used those elements of folktale that are there because you're right, it's not that much. But it also explains maybe the transformation from Nutcracker to real boy. The yeah. Pinocchio. Pinocchio. The Pinocchio. Pinocchio. <laughs> Everybody knows the Pinocchio. <laughs> mm -hmm. That makes it interesting. That makes it really, really interesting. But yeah, competition is always in the stories too. I will give a prize to anyone. Again, E.T.A. Hoffman uses this too. I'll give a prize or reward to anyone who can make the best nutcracker or who can crack this nut. Something like that. So that makes sense. Totally. We have the basics. We have the foundation. Do you want to tell us a bit more about our friend E.T.A. Hoffman? Yes. Going along this evolutionary timeline of the Nutcracker, the next step would be the first novella. Because at this point, we have good folktales like this, or scattered folktales, I would say. And it is still concentrated in the European crowds. It hasn't quite made it to America yet. But the appearance of this Nutcracker doll, this Nutcracker tool, in this children's gothic-y... <laughs> novella it was published 1816 and Hoffman is technically a German and this children's collection had fairy tales it was like our Hans Christian Andersen it was our hmm. Grimm's brothers it was something like that for German children and he called it the Nutcracker and the Mouse King and it is very much a fairy tale within a fairy tale Europeans at this time when they're writing novellas, it usually means like, oh, I'm telling a story secondhand by this person who was actually there or that person who was not there, but had a friend who was actually there. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Was that Aladdin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Arabian Nights does that. It's a nesting doll effect of storytelling, which I think, and then we'll talk about this after I describe what the book's about. It's the effect of saying this is fantasy because we can't authenticate it without having somebody mm. tell somebody else tell somebody else. It makes it more acceptable as a fantastical concept, mm. really. And it's for children. I mean, you kind of have to be like, well, duh, of course it's not <laughs> reality. It's it's fantasy. Right. It's imagination. You don't take mm. that as rationality. 
But at the time E.T.A. Hoffman is writing this, he's living in a very rational society. It's just at the tail end of the Enlightenment period. So hmm. we'll see why this particular story is, is important to him and the use of imagination. Imagination? Never heard of it. What? <laughs> Especially with the <laughs> Nutcracker doll. Yeah. I think it's one of the best characters you can use to ignite imagination as Jen has just explained the evolution of this one tool that suddenly has a bunch of like folktale-ish mythos behind it. Try to name one hammer that is in a ballet, okay? <laughs> name one. <laughs> or the stapler. <laughs> Where's the ballet for the stapler? Jeez. <laughs> just as a blanket statement, the story can really be described as a fairy tale where a seven-year-old girl is breaking a curse of a Nutcracker doll. No matter the novella, the ballet, it has something to do with a young girl breaking the curse of a Nutcracker doll. The typical characters, off the bat, if you've never seen the ballet, we have Marie Stahlbaum, who's going to be called Clara in the ballets later, but she is our hero. We have Godfather Jocelyn Meyer, who is described as an eccentric inventor. But I think he plays the role of the mentor or maybe even like a magician because he's the one that's really making things happen and allowing us to accept the imaginative elements, right? Totally. Then we have the Nutcracker Prince, who is the love interest. Because like I said, Hoffman also wrote Gothic. I mean, this I would describe the story even as a Gothic literature as well. Definitely. And then our villain, the Mouse King. <laughs> <laughs> Who apparently has seven heads. It's a lot of hats to buy. So that's your main cast. And you will see that cast not only in the novellas, but later in movie adaptations and obviously in the ballet. So I'm going to start with the frame story. On Christmas Eve, Marie becomes attached to a particular gift, a Nutcracker doll from her godfather, Jocelyn That night, Marie is putting her Nutcracker to sleep when mice start emerging from the shadows. The biggest of them is a seven-headed mouse called the Mouse King. It's then that all of Marie's toys, including the Nutcracker, come alive and do battle with the mice. These battle scenes, always in fairy tales. Somebody, it's like good versus evil battle scenes. They are, however, outnumbered, and it's only a well-aimed throw of Marie's slipper that saves the Nutcracker from the Mouse King. She gets to do the saving. I know it's kind of silly because it's just a shoe, but hey, I get the metaphor. It means something. And she's supposed to be seven years old, by the way. Did I already say that? She's seven. I need to make this clear. And she's not screaming that there's a bunch of mice around her. That's pretty courageous for a seven-year-old. Who would have thought? <laughs> so the next morning, Marie wakes up in bed, having injured her arm in the excitement. And while recovering, Godfather Jocelyn who Marie suspects was witness to this entire battle, tells her a story to explain the events. So this is the fairy tale within the fairy tale. And... Godfather Jocelyn calls it the tale of the hard nut. There was once a king and queen who had a beautiful baby girl named Princess Perlipat. One day, while the queen was making sausage, a mouse queen named Mouserinks, because <laughs> why not, asked for a piece of the sausage fat. And when the human queen obliged, Mouserinks's mice children swarmed and ate all of the sausage. Now concerned, the king and queen asked that their royal inventor, Jocelyn make something that would stop the mice from eating their fat. So Jocelyn invents the first mouse trap. And it worked, because the traps killed all of Mouserink's children, save her seven-headed mouse son. 
But now furious and vengeful, Queen Mouserinx curses the king's daughter, Princess Perlipat, giving her a big head, a grinning mouth, and a beard. What does that look like? <laughs> Blaming Jocelyn for his daughter's new curse, the king commands that the inventor find a way to cure her, which Jocelyn does, stating that according to Perlipat's horoscope, she must eat the kernel of the nut called Krakatuk. This is a nut. We're naming a nut. <laughs> it's supposed to be like the hardest nut to crack. And it's called Krakatuk. Krakatuk. And this nut, Krakatuk, must be, quote, cracked with the teeth before the princess by a man who has never been shaved and has never worn boots. And the young man must then hand her the kernel with closed eyes and must not open them again until he has marched seven steps backward without stumbling, end quote. Again, this is a horoscope that he's reading out loud. <laughs> it's just absurd. It's very random. And I think it's more for the, like the sing-song effect mm. when you're reading a fairy tale out loud and you're reading this curse out loud to a kid. The kid's going to be like, oh, fun, crack a tuck. Oh, yeah. fun, seven steps back while presenting a nut that I just cracked for a princess in order to break a curse. <laughs> I mean, none of that makes sense. But it's fun because sprinkled within all of that nonsense are very real psychological elements, like the number seven. Like breaking a curse of ugliness, which we will see in other fairy tales, or the curse of being ugly when there's a pretty princess, mm -hmm. right? All of those things we're familiar with. It's mm -hmm. just a new combination of all of them. Very true. Okay, anyway, so Jocelyn Meyer just said all this out loud, and people are thinking that he's nuts. He's crackle-tuck nuts. He's crackle-tuck nuts. <laughs> but apparently the king believes him because he's like, great, then go and find both the nut and the man. Mm. And apparently he goes on this journey for 15 years trying to find both the nut and the man who could break the curse. But it's totally fruitless. So discouraged after all this time, he returns and he discovers then that his brother has found this really hard nut called Krakatuk. So it's another like sub story within a sub story saying how he got that nut, but that doesn't matter. And then on top of that, he's saying that his nephew also fits the description of the curse breaker. He's like, oh, that's great because my son happens to have the strongest teeth in the kingdom and he can crack this Krakatuk nut for you. So Drosselmeyer's like, great, I got both after 15 years and they were in the kingdom the whole time. <laughs> and then furthermore, Drosselmeyer realizes that if his nephew is able to break Perlipat's curse, his nephew would then become prince because the king promised Perlipat's hand to anyone who could break the curse. So using his very strong teeth, Drosselmeyer's nephew does indeed perform the necessary curse breaking. And to everyone's delight, Princess Perlipat becomes beautiful again. <laughs> However... Uh-oh. On the nephew's seventh step back, he accidentally crushes the queen Mouserinx. <gasps> and the curse of Perlipat's once big head, big mouth, and mustache now is projected onto the nephew. And according to this story, that is the origin of the first Nutcracker. Because as we said, the prince had really strong teeth. He now has the big head. He now has this beard they say is made of cotton and really like fluffy. And he's disproportionate. His head is now bigger than the rest of his body. Mm -hmm. So technically, Jocelyn nephew is now the first Nutcracker. You couldn't make that up. It's only things in reality that are that crazy. Isn't that so? I mean, but I kind of love that. Totally. Sure, I believe that. That's a great fairy tale for that origin story. Mm -hmm. And then in order to complete this fairy tale here, instead of being grateful, Princess Perlipat banishes all of the Jocelyn from her court, while the seven-headed son of Queen Mouserinx, now called the Mouse King, 
promises to one day avenge the death of his mother on the now-cursed Nutcracker. Beautiful. So back to the frame story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marie has just heard all of this. She now understands that her godfather is the royal inventor, Josselmeyer, that her Nutcracker is his cursed nephew, and that the seven-headed Mouse King is Mouserink's vengeful son. So the Mouse King, who is still alive, threatens Marie and her Nutcracker again. But Marie decides to give the Nutcracker a sword, and he once and for all defeats the Mouse King with that. And then to thank Marie, the Nutcracker takes her to visit his doll kingdom, where she sees beautiful palaces of candy and sweets and more dolls. (laughs) (laughs) And then waking the next day back at home, Marie describes the experience to her family, and this sucks. Her family dismisses it, telling her that she's gone mad and shouldn't dream anymore. Again, a seven-year-old is telling these stories. Like, Mm. why? Okay, we'll talk about that more. (laughs) But despite everyone's discouragement marie goes to the nutcracker and promises her love to him despite his ugliness and voila that of course breaks the final curse of course and the way the frame story describes it is at that moment the doorbell rings and they go down and they meet jocelyn nephew young nephew who is of course a real person and he's the one that takes marie aside and says all of it was true you've now broken my curse would you marry me problematic but cool i guess (laughs) marie says yes i think we're in blurred lines here of fantasy versus reality and if you read the book you kind of get that because it's very jumbled and you're not sure with all of this kind of ridiculousness of the sing-song language and the characters who are telling other characters the stories it's very it's supposed to be very blurred yeah and it is still weird i think even in eta hoffman's time to think of a seven-year-old getting married but the completion of the fairy tale romance is that she says yes. Right. And a year later, the nephew comes back to get her, and he leads her into this doll kingdom again, where she is now queen. <laughs> At eight. She's doing well for eight. <laughs> she's only eight, and she's the queen of a beautiful doll kingdom that is made entirely of sweets, by the way. Yeah. If that is not the young girl's dream, yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Just the girl's dream. Does it have to be young girl? We all want a kingdom made of sweets. Totally. <laughs> Done. That's it. And like I said, it has gothic elements and fairy tale elements. If you're interested in reading it, it, it's worth at least one read. I don't know if you need to read it ever again after that. <laughs> but at the time, like I was saying, it. I think E.T.A. Hoffman would have described it as a nice relief from the rational society. Hmm. And E.T.A. Hoffman did a lot of other artistic things, but... He liked the idea of using the imagination despite the rationality of the Enlightenment. Right. And I think presenting a story that has blurred lines of what's real and what's imagination helps that intention. And it's nice to see that from a child's perspective that Marie is actually making this fairy tale come true. She's being rewarded and she's the hero because it's the Nutcracker technically who is the damsel in distress here. She's the one breaking his curse. Which is nice. Yes, it is a nice change. Yeah. And I might add real quick that the story was adapted by another author, by Alexander Dumas. 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 (laughs) (laughs) He did Three Musketeers and uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. So he was well known. And I think that that helped in its circulation because this was kind of a down and out fairy tale in German society. But as soon as Alexander Dumas retells it, it feels like a reincarnation that's more child friendly and shorter Mm. there's less details in his version and more straightforward but it still feels very much like a fairy tale the whole time and did we really need all of those minute details you don't there's a reason that dumas version is so noticed 
And it'll be the version that the theater director uses for his first creation of the Nutcracker Ballet. Nice. So now that we know what the story is about, let's talk about the fairy tale elements that really brought the story into the mass attention, I would call it, and interest, right? Because again, the imaginative part was the cool part at the time. Everybody wanted to hear more of the fairy tale to offset that really hard logic that was coming into their culture. I think that was one of the reasons the Nutcracker became well-known, is my theory. What do you think? Would you agree with that? I think that makes sense. I'm just thinking, like, it is pretty absurd, the story. Not in a bad way. It's just very absurd. Mm -hmm. If it didn't get birthed from a time of enlightenment and logic and people trying to get away from things like that, I don't think it could have come out at a different time or place that would have made it this popular because it's ridiculous in a good way. I like it. And in all honesty, in my opinion, that's why I feel like the story doesn't hold up today. Mm. There's problems with movie adaptations and there's going to be problems with the ballet because in the ballet, it's broken down into two acts. And most people would say that the first act is very plot heavy, whereas the second act is nothing but a presentation of talent. Mm -hmm. There's not a way to translate the hard nut fairy tale into a ballet. Mm. It is that absurd Mm. and that chaotic. Mm. I mean, it's cool and it it does have like some hits on the psyche. But as far as bringing it into another art form like ballet or movies, Mm. because I've never seen a movie with that tale in it. Have you? No. Mm -mm. Probably because it doesn't quite work. Just like the decorative nutcracker. It does not work in our (laughs) time, but it is there and we look at it. It's not functional, but it's decorative. (laughs) That's actually a great way to say it. It's decorative and not functional. It's very meta. Yeah. I like it. I'm glad we still have it around because there is something there and it's hard to get rid of it. Totally. Which speaks to its importance. So, I mean, it's not like we're like, don't read or watch this. It's no, there's obviously something there that continues to capture people's attention. It's just not perfect. Yeah. If you can ignore those elements that do seem extravagant or confusing, the obvious one being the seven-year-old who gets married. Yeah. (laughs) So that's one of them. That doesn't translate well into modern society. And most fairy tales wouldn't. They're all metaphors. It's symbolism. It's not literal. Totally. And I always found that the marriage part was her reward. I mean, not the Mm. boy, although the boy is a coming of age element. And maybe if she was older, that could be more of a boon. Mm -hmm. But at her age, I'm thinking the boon is more of empowerment, is becoming queen of your own imagination, despite your family Mm. saying, don't do it. It won't work. We're in this 19th century wealthy German family. She already knows what she's going to be because she starts off as an obedient young girl. And it says that. It actually says that in the novel that she was the good sibling. She did everything right. She listened to her parents. And this one time that she gets connected to this doll because it brings out her imagination, it's squandered. The only person who's really flaming it is her godfather who happens to invent toys like that to fuel the imagination. He works as the mentor saying like, no, 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 you go on and you dream that because at the end of Mm. this dream, you're going to become the queen. You're going to save the damsel in distress Mm. and you're going to live in this kingdom of candy and dolls. Like what else would you hope for? And because her heart is in the right place. Yeah. I think the big one is the curse breaking too. It's like, I will love you despite your ugliness because Princess Perlipat couldn't, but I could because I'm a good person. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It sounded very 
mean girl like to say it that way but yes <laughs> i'll accept you even though you are absolutely hideous <laughs> i think that's <laughs> that does sound like mean girls <laughs> And I, I think you make a lot of really excellent points. I was thinking about like how I get a little bit pulled in both directions because A, I like that for once there is a gift of a person, which is not a gift, like a boon of a person is a man instead of a woman. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, I'm like, well, who would want that as a as a gift? But like being empowered and having your own kingdom and being in charge of yourself being the one that is making these decisions along the way really is awesome and good and not something we see a lot, as you and I both know, in literature and folk tales and things like that. Exactly. And on that note, the element of ugliness or of the monster or of the wooden boy turning into a real boy. I'm a real boy! What do we have there? We have Beauty and the Beast, maybe a little bit of... Shrek. <laughs> Shrek? Oh my god, totally Shrek. Yeah, that's totally Shrek. Yeah. Alice in Wonderland, which is the blurring of madness and reality there. And Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> and a little girl. Yeah, and the little girl creating the kingdom, creating the, the world. So how, how do you feel about the Beauty and the Beast element or the Pinocchio element or even the Alice in Wonderland element? Do those work here or what would you have done differently? I don't like the Beauty and the Beast one, obviously. I mean... It makes sense, but it also doesn't work for me in terms of I will love you despite the fact that you're not perfect. It's like, well, yeah, you're human. So hello. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like it goes into all kinds of different aspects of modern society and expectations and the expectations we put on women, especially, even though in this case it comes across um, with men. I think that's generally not what happens in regular life maybe that's what makes it so fantastical they're like whoa this would never happen to a man right. so <laughs> i have issues with it because of that however as like beauty and the beast in this story i think it works perfectly and i like that it's not so simple i like that the princess for instance is like ah peace out like you gotta go you took my curse and that's great but you gotta go now like that at least gives a bit more. It's a little bit more. And I know that's from the gothic version of it. So there is more room for those kinds of changes. Mm -hmm. Whereas here you don't have as much room for that if you want to stay in this arena that Dumas specifically wants to, to be in. It was the story that everybody else really resonated with in some way. Yeah, I and I always thought Princess Perlipat was used as a comparison. The potential of two heroes who differ because one is all accepting. The nice thing about Hoffman's story is that you could go in a thousand different ways because there's so much there. And I would argue the the ballet, Ch Tchaikovsky's, is that how you say his name? Yes. Version of it is similar. You can really kind of put all kinds of things in there. As far as like Alice in Wonderland, I don't know. It's just, it really to me feels like if you put... Beauty and the Beast, Shrek, Alice in Wonderland together and like turned it all around and mushed it all up. This is something that you would get from that because it really seamlessly follows these, I would say, well-established tropes that we talk about. Yeah. And I know Shrek is not, it's a, it's a modern folk tale or whatever, or fairy tale, but I like, again, that turn in the end, spoiler, if you've never seen Shrek, 
that in the end, you know, she's also an ogre and she doesn't care that he is and it's actually a secret that they're keeping from each other because they're afraid of what the other will think and I really think that integrates well into this again this idea of I just really I don't know I really like the turn I guess that the princess who reminds me a lot of Sleeping Beauty too where you have this like perfect or Aurora you know this perfect princess character and she's the protagonist and you could kind of expect Perlipat to be the protagonist or at least I did mm -hmm. so that was kind of a nice shift it just so happens that the way it shifted was based on this as you put it the curse of ugliness right it's a little muddled my thoughts but what do you think it's muddled that's a great way of describing that okay and I think that was Hoffman's intention mm. was it to be muddled with all of these familiar elements of the fairy tale Mm. But even even within that chaos, I think the metaphors work because mm. if you're thinking of like the Shrek innovation of, oh, she also becomes ugly. Mm -hmm. I might argue that if you interpret the nephew appearing at the end, it's mm -hmm. him also participating in her imagination. Mm. I mean, if you're thinking as like an adult, I validate that this is going on in your head. And if we end up together, I will make sure that that power stays within you. I would not mm. squander that. I will mm. participate. I mean, yeah. that's kind of far-fetched, but if you're thinking, again, as a metaphor, yeah, they're agreeing to participate in the story together. Yeah. It's still weird. Hoffman could have made her a little older, and it, it might have been... But I don't know. Maybe you need to be young in order to have that much imagination? No. <laughs> I think it's easier to tap into it when you're that age. You don't have to think about it, but I think anybody of any age. And it, it might have served it even better if she were a little bit older. Because then you could really say that's a coming-of-age story. I don't know if you can say that if it's seven year, you know, at seven, that's not coming yeah. of age. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Or even older, the coming, instead of coming of age, it's the idea of reconnecting with our imaginations as kids and reconnecting with the, the child, the inner child. There is an adaptation of the Nutcracker Ballet where it's a widow, a woman who's lost her oh. husband and it's been a few years and the Nutcracker is supposed to be like the ghost of her husband, oh. like a reminder of what her and her husband had. Interesting. Again, the same sort of role, just at an older age. I could see that. Totally. I did appreciate this because when I was that young, I was definitely playing with my toys with that dreamscape in mind. The things that I loved most were eating candy and then playing with my dolls, whether that means they were fighting each other because they were waging war, which I did a lot, by the way. I actually liked the battles <laughs> at a young age. Our little warmonger. <laughs> I would never go to war, but obviously I'm okay with playing with it. <laughs> because I like the heroism of it. I always liked the idea yeah. of whatever side was going to win was the good side. And they were always going to be for the betterment of the kingdom or whatever realm I was mm. creating. And the reward would often be like a good relationship would be like, oh, mm. now we're going to reign together. And in my version, it was always a prince. The girl who was fighting was going to win the prince. Nice. Love it. So I, I think maybe that's my connection. And the Nutcracker has kind of held that interest for me because of that, too. Mm. Because when I watched the ballet, I was like, oh, look, there's my imagination right in front of me. Even though the second act was like super boring. It was beautiful. <laughs> but the second is. act was always really boring. But the frame story, that's where it that held that initial imagination. And I liked that. Mm. Do you have any personal connection with the Nutcracker, the ballet? Does this story hit any early childhood memories? I wasn't familiar with the Nutcracker as a child. I think I saw it once when I was too little to understand what I was watching. But more recently... I found that what I like about her, what resonates with me most is this idea of stepping into 
a world of imagination, which sounds very cheesy, but that speaks to me definitely of like immersing oneself. And I always thought, I guess this is more related to the ballet. I know we're trying to kind of keep those two things separate, but you kind of have, and it, it's connected to Hoffman's story. You have this outside frame, like you were talking about, where there's this story on the outside happening. And that's kind of like a story I could be familiar with, where like you're at a family gathering and there's the crazy family member telling you all these wild stories and you're just like what are you talking about (gasps) and it's very like relatable and it kind of eases you into this idea for me anyway a familiar thing that could be happening and then it does sort of do what happens when i was a kid and even now because i'm an artist or (laughs) yes which (laughs) i don't like saying oh yeah it's the same sort of concept of like you're framed the story around you that's happening your normal life is the, the outside frame and then you drop into this sub world which is the imagination and i like that in the both in the book and in the play and in all these various other versions that have come about that you get to kind of experience it is very russian doll like ironically because it's a nutcracker so it's not a russian doll but it it has that effect <laughs> somehow to me don't know how this is even before we did the research on this episode the nutcracker item itself really does capture that aspect and i think that's really impressive and strange but i still like it knowing where the nutcracker doll came from and the tool came from and then its association with its first real story as a novella you will see that other people will find interest in the imaginative arena of this object and like we've mentioned in this whole talk that the ballet is going to mix this very unique triad of gorgeous music by Tchaikovsky gorgeous choreography by who would be the original Russian choreographers and ballet dancers and then this really weird great (laughs) folktale of the Nutcracker I think it yeah. that, as a triad works really nice. So next time, part two, the story of the Nutcracker Ballet. You can email us, of course, at bitethepen at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook and Patreon. And for the moment, we are still maintaining our Twitter account and we'll most likely have a Hive account by the end of the month. We both want to say a huge, mega, ungodly huge amount of thank you to our patron pen biters, Jesse M, Thunderfly, and Jeanette M. Your support is really amazing, and we appreciate it so much. And if you would like to support us, you can donate on Patreon, or you can use PayPal, which is on our website now. And if you can't support us in this way, no worries at all. We totally get it. Uh, If you want to tell your friends about us or share it or review it, anything you can do would be great. And just listening is also great. Do whatever you want. Most of all, we're just, you and I both are just really glad to be doing this podcast. And we always appreciate anybody who has taken the time to been like, this was a good part and you were funny in this part. And that was really cool that you said, and whatever you guys say, just listening and all of that is really amazing. And we really love doing it happy early holidays don't forget to listen and tell stories at this time too very good advice something that you and i have talked about doing and i think something that you've done is just reading a little bit of a christmas carol every yeah you know a couple times during the month just to you know soak in some vibes 
So caps off, pen biters, stick around for Charlotte's amazing quote happening now. It's just from Hoffman's novel because I thought it was really cute. The treacherous king of the mice has been vanquished and lies writhing in his blood. Deign, dear lady, to accept these tokens of victory from the hand of one who will be your true and faithful knight 